Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, the legislature is still in session. They're down to, what, the last four days, I think. Uh, they're supposed to finish up next Tuesday, so we're going to have a lot to talk about on the show today about the action down at the state capitol. Uh, but we'll uh, also be talking about a lot more than that, as we always try to do on this show. Kevin Riley, it's Tuesdays. The day that we look forward to welcoming you on the panel. Kevin is, of course, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the boss of the other AJC reporters who come on this show. Hi, Kevin. Thanks, Bill. It's good to be here. It's great to have you here. By the way, I want to say something while you are, we're talking about you uh, as the uh, uh, editor of the AJC. If people, I don't know how many, do have we retweeted the, um, to politics GPB, the tweet that I put out with David Brooks' column from the New York Times, uh, Robert or Tom? Um, yeah. If, if you uh, follow us at all on Twitter, go to politics GPB. Uh, David Brooks in the New York Times wrote what I thought was a really uh, important column today. He certainly uh, synthesized some of my feelings, uh, Kevin, about how the media may want to rethink what went on during the 22 months of the Robert Mueller investigation. And, and I so go to, to, to the uh, Twitter page and, and read the column. But the most important thing he said was, I think, was that, you know, real reporters for The New York Times, Washington Post, other national publications did real reporting throughout all of this for the most part. But the cable news networks instead of reporting news, spent 22 months on rampant speculation. Right. Robert right. Mueller sneezed on his way into his office today. <laughs> Let's spend the next 40 minutes talking about what we think that means about where this investigation is headed. And, and I felt that way throughout this entire period of time. And I, I, I think that Brooks is right, that those organizations and any others who were doing speculation instead of actual reporting ought to be thinking about how they handled all this in the same way that the Sean Hannity's of the world ought to be thinking about how they treated Robert Mueller, uh, accused him of a witch hunt, said he was, you know, conflicted, an angry Democrat, all that sort of thing. Right. Well, Bill, I, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned it. I have to tell you, that's part of the reason I'm here and why I try to be here every Tuesday is because uh, I think here on this show, as we'll do today and as we you do with the show and certainly in the newspaper, we really work hard at that. We're not trying to fill hours and hours of programming where the idea is to put on the most provocative people saying the most outrageous things so that people will continue to watch and tune in tomorrow. I mean, one of the reasons I like to be on the show is because, I mean, like today, we have two incredibly smart people. Uh, they may have different opinions. But they don't scream and yell at each other, and oh, their oh, reason. Yeah. You know, Theron and Jackie, you just haven't seen them. You haven't seen them together. <laughs> she's, she's never have you witnessed her party with me before the show. She, she took the first poke at me before the show started. But my, my point is that I, I love you too. I feel like I feel like the mission of the newspaper, certainly the mission of this show, yeah. is to make sure that that Georgians who want to be informed and understand what's going on yeah. get the real story, make their decisions, yeah. have a chance to do well, it. Well, yeah, thank you. I. I I agree. I'm very proud of the fact that we we just we are not we are we are never once in the speculate Trump speculation game, and I'm proud of that. I'm proud of all of us on the show. Because I may we have jinxed us though. We'll probably no. have a brawl breakout so, in the studio today. So we have informally uh, introduced our, our panelists today. Uh, Jackie Cushman is a uh, conservative columnist. I, I read your latest column. I think you just posted it a couple days ago in Town Hall. It's called um, Sheep for dinner, and it's about uh, something that Democrat Steve Cohn from Nashville is has really been talking a lot about, which is... Absolutely. We're looking at, I mean, look, look at the Electoral College. So there's a lot of talk now about should we get, do away with it, because if you look at the map, clearly um, the way it's constructed, it gives a lot of weight to states that don't have a lot of people, but that was the way it was constructed on purpose so that those states would have a, have a voice in it. And the idea is if you have the sheet for dinner, if you have three people and you have 
you know, two wolves and a sheep. I mean, who's going to be for dinner, right? You can figure that one out pretty easily. <laughs> do so, you write your own headlines? Yeah, I, yeah, I think I need to do a better job. Can you can you help me with that? <laughs> what are you no, talking about? Sheep for that? dinner was good. Um, but I do, but I do think it's an important topic. Um, and I, you know, we th- we need to think about things before we just jump in and you know and have an opinion about them. How is it actually constructed? What does it actually you know do? And what was the purpose of it? Well, it's important. J- you can read Jackie's column. You can get to it easily two ways. JackieCushman.com, which is her uh, homepage, which which is a page that talks talks about her her books. Uh, it'll also link you to the column. You can go to Town Hall right. and just find you at Town Hall, right? Exactly. Okay. Theron Johnson uh, is with us just back. You said you were in uh, Washington? Uh, yeah, I went to an APAC conference, and so uh, it was really good. I only spent a little bit of time up there, but uh, it was good to be with some of my colleagues from the Southeast region um, to learn more about all the good work the APAC is doing. Theron Johnson, a most of you already know, a Democratic political consultant. He played a big role in the uh, Barack Obama re-election campaign. You oversaw the southern, southeastern region of the uh, campaign. Isn't that right? I did. A yeah. lot of work with Kasim Reed. Yeah. And Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. And I was going to ask you, you're, are you working pretty hard? Uh, well, I'm not officially on a payroll, so I know the AJC is probably... We'll check into, on that. Yeah, <laughs> <they're>, <laughs> we'll check. Sit on up yourself, Big. No, big support of hers as well. So, All right. Here. Well, it's great to have you, uh, you all here today. Let, let's start with um, something that happened uh, yesterday. The um, SB 106, even as we went on the air yesterday, it was just being introduced in the House for a vote. This is really, um, Kevin, uh, Governor Kemp's signature legislation this session. He calls it the Patients First Act. Uh, What it essentially does is it gives back to the governor the power to apply for Medicaid waivers for some people— in the poorest income brackets in the state. And it also allows him to do what he says he wants to do, which is to come up with subsidies for people who are buying insurance on the exchange, but really could use financial help in doing that. It's, um, for him, a big deal. Uh, It remains a very controversial measure. Right. Well, I, I know that it's got a fancy name and there's been a lot of talk about it, but this is Medicaid expansion in the end. I mean, I think we could say that, right? I mean, I'm he, not sure Democrats, I mean, Democrats might say it's yeah. sort of Medicaid it's, it's, expansion. It's, 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 it's a limited Medicaid expansion. I think you'd agree with that, Theron. It's a, it's a yeah. portion, right? And, and, to, and to, to, your, to your question, Kevin, and, to, and add on Jackie's point, um, you know, Democrats who were very vocal in opposition of this, is saying that it's just a first step towards Medicaid expansion. But the, this bill, as you just talked about, um, Bill, is it, it gives the governor this legislative authority uh, to begin the process of this waiver program. Um, but what Democrats were saying is, why don't we just go ahead and do what's worked in about a dozen other states? And that is just do what Stacey Abrams called for during her campaign, which is to fully expand Medicaid. But I will say this as a Democrat. I want to commend the governor publicly for for doing something that has not been done as of yet. I mean, he is working hard. It was a campaign promise that he made to enter into this waiver program. But I would also say that I also back up, you know, Minority Leader Bob Trammell, who encouraged the governor when he spoke out uh, against this measure, saying, um, let's make sure that this is not the end all be all. Um, And I think that you're going to see more and more conversations about how you get to full uh, Medicaid expansion. The governor, Jackie, his proposal would provide Medicaid for Georgians earning at 100 percent of the poverty level. Mm-hmm. I don't remember how many people that is essentially, we think, whereas Democrats like a Bob Trammell say that we could go further. We ought to take that number. We are the federal government is glad to let us go up to 138 percent of the poverty level, and we're missing a large chunk of Georgians as a result. Well, I mean, I think that's the, the answer is yes, but the, this is a way. This is again. This is this is um, Governor Kemp who did promise the first part of this act, which is the waivers to help those that have pre-existing conditions that have higher um, payments to, to offset that. Okay, that's that's part one. Part two is this now reaching into 100 percent or below. And helping them as well, and, and opening up um, that for you know healthcare for them. And I think the answer would be let's just let's make this let's make this, and let's see where we are and see how it works. And then to to Theron's point, I think then you have another discussion. Um, I think in any negotiation like this, you're going to have one side that thinks if you if you have both sides that think they're not really quite happy, then you'll probably have a good negotiation. Because if one side got everything, it wouldn't be a negotiation; it would be 
that's what we're doing. So to me, this sounds like it ends up in the right place. And the other thing that you mentioned that I want to make sure that the listeners understand is the interesting part to me is this is giving back to the governor or the authority he had that was stripped <laughs> right. in 2014 because there was concern. And I'll, and I'll say why, because there was concern that deal could have been beaten. And so they wanted to make sure that the authority wasn't there if that happened. And then it gets, I, mean, so I just think that's an interesting know, political like a, point, right? I think that's interesting to know. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. What's up confusing about this? Wait right. a minute. I thought the Democrats wanted the governor to have in, this authority. In 2014, that's right. Exactly. In, in 2014, Kevin, mm-hmm. there was fear in the General Assembly that it was possible that Jason Carter mm-hmm. could beat Nathan Deal. And the last thing they wanted was the Democratic governor to have what had always been the prerogative of the governor, the right to determine right. Medicaid well, expansion. Well, and, and Jeff used the word stripped. I think that's a little <laughs> well, strong. I mean, yeah. I mean, they passed the bill Phil and the governor signed it and, yeah. and agreed to right. let that happen. Right? No, but, but feel free to edit my words. But the point is the governor has had this power forever until, I mean, for long, until 2014 when it was taken away. And what's so good about Jackie, guys, is that she's willing to come on this radio show and tell the truth. And so, but the <laughs> what the Democrats were saying is now this new bill gives the governor broad new authority, um, new authority without requiring any final legislative sign-off. And so that was one of the criticisms that we heard about this. But the other thing I want to say really quickly, Bill, is that this bill, and I think Jackie may agree with me on this, is that it is a first step, but it does not solve our problem uh, with poor and rural Explain people. Explain that. Because I think that, again— it, Many people believe AJC has done many, many polls will show that the majority of Georgians think that we should fully expand Medicaid. Like 70 percent, 70 percent. And so uh, the only criticism that I've really heard is that it does not go far and farther enough, uh, far enough to to uh, help. But also another argument that Democrats may, I think, in a very good way is that this is a way for us to spur our economy in Georgia. I mean, if you expand Medicaid, it can definitely help the economy continue to build. And so I think that you saw an economic message from Democrats here as well. But the, the good look, the, the bottom line is this. The governor needed a win. Um, you know, he needed this to happen very soon. Uh, it shows strength. But I tell you, I think that you look at Leader Trammell and Leader Henson and the state Senate, Steve Henson, uh, Democrats are going to continue to be very vocal about the opposition of this bill. But but don't you think they might be, I mean, at this stage, asking for a little too much? I mean, think about the movement from where mm-hmm. the state was, mm-hmm. where the former governor and legislature were saying, absolutely no way, we won't even think right. about it. We won't even think about it. So now they've 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 moved the ball forward in a way that's that's clear and 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 discernible. Uh, although whatever's going on in Washington with, <laughs> with the Trump administration complicates it, I'm sure. But I mean, could they have expected to get as far as as they're talking about getting it all at once? I think you know, even Kevin, for me to come on and publicly say, "Hey, I commend the governor with pushing this forward." I think that you see a different tone and tenor from Democrats. I think what you saw from Lita Trammell in particular. You know, when we first started this debate about Medicaid uh, waivers, he also tried to uh, attach it to community uh, certificates of need. So so we know how that argument kind of went away. And so I don't think we're going too far. I do think that Democrats know that your polling show that people in this state, 70 percent of them actually agree that we should fully explain Medicaid. The challenge now is, is that you got a governor who got a big win, who got something passed. So now you got to kind of reframe your argument and make it as with make it as if you're trying to work with the governor to get this further, not necessarily oppose this first step. No, I mean, I totally agree. I think that's part of the process is, again, um, the first part of the, the bill was what he agreed to during his campaign. The second part, I think, to your, to your point there, and he actually moved towards the Democrats, not as far as they wanted. Um, but again, that, that's part of the process that we have. And I think if both sides, you know, I think it, it moves some Republicans farther than they wanted to be, quite frankly, and it, it's not quite as far as the Democrats want, which means it's probably a good place to start. So, Jackie, one of the arguments that Democrats made as this uh, uh, went on during the session was that they got an estimate of the costs to the state for expanding Medicaid across the board. And they said it would cost about $200 million. Theron's nodding at that. But so let me throw this out because that came up again uh, as they were debating this measure. The $200 million that Bob Trammell is talking about is the state share of Medicaid, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. The, the problem with that it, is it doesn't address what the Republican leadership from Nathan Deal to David Perdue and now to Brian Kemp mm-hmm. have been saying they're concerned about, which is not just the state share, 
But the concern that this nine to one match, which the federal government offers because of Obamacare, could go away. Suddenly you've expanded Medicaid to the entire state and you're stuck figuring out how to pay for what the feds used to. Now, there's no reason to think it is going away, but that's the argument Republicans have always used. Well, and I I think that's the classic Republican. I mean, you know, we're um, we're very skeptical in general, um, no matter who is in office in Washington, that. You know, the the winds blow in different ways in Washington, depending on how things, you know, change over time. And in the end, if it's if it's in our state, we're going to have to make sure it gets paid, whether it's by us or by the federal government. And yes, there's a match now. But if something changes, it may go away. And quite frankly, that just makes Republicans very nervous. And again, I think that's why this is a good first step. It's, you know, it's 100 percent of poverty and below. So it's the people that need it the most, which is where you want to start. And then I think you look at it again, you look where the winds are, and then, you make, you know, you decide what's next. Two, two quick points. But one of the things that we also heard at the Capitol, and, and I'm hearing it as I were uh, on my way here today, is that this plan in its current form, which may change, as Zach, Jackie just pointed out, and you made a good point about the federal match, it basically costs more and covers less people. And I think that's the, the, you know, you want to know a Democratic tagline, Kevin, if mm-hmm. I was running a campaign, you know, for state house and state senate is that we in this current form has a plan that basically costs more and more and covers less people. The second thing is one of the things that we kind of alluded to is all about ensuring th- this gap that we talked about. We heard a lot during the gubernatorial race between now Governor Kemp and then the gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams about this closing this gap where you have people who, depending on their income, you just alluded to it, Jackie, are just kind of stuck in this gap and they have no access to affordable health care. And so, again, this waiver program, while it's a step forward, we still got to be able to make sure that you're ensuring that coverage gap is being filled. Well, the governor does think this is his signature legislation. And one sign of that is your uh, your political one of your political reporters, Greg, Greg Bluestein, uh, let me know a little while ago that the, sign- the signing ceremony is already planned. It'll be held tomorrow at 2 o'clock. So the governor is, I think uh, you said, Theron, he's not going to waste well, too much time maybe signing you should this. remind Greg who he works for because he didn't send me a note about it. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, that's somebody warning posting right now. <laughs> my, first thing, my first question to him was, thanks for telling me you're not going to miss the show tomorrow because of that. And he's got that covered. Um, let's talk about some, an ancillary subject that really fits in right here, Kevin. And I'm open to arguments from Jackie, if you'd like to make it, Jackie. But uh, it after the victory that there's no question the president got uh, the other day as a result of the Mueller investigation, it appears to some extent that the administration may be trying to snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory. The Justice Department this morning filed a federal lawsuit to entirely overturn the Affordable Care Act. I was, I think many people were stunned that after a 2018 election campaign in which health care and particularly pre-existing conditions was such a huge issue, and two days after the Mueller report, Republicans would uh, go out there and uh, take up this issue. Right. So I, I, what happened, right, we had that ruling in, I guess it was Texas, right, um, in, in federal court that where a judge mm-hmm. just said yeah, it's oh, Texas. the whole law is invalid, unconstitutional. So now <laughs> it's at the United States Courts of Appeal, United, United States Court of Appeals in, in the 5th District. And the, the administration apparently in, in just sent a couple sentences to the court and said, we're not going to fight it. We agree with the we agree with the ruling. So it's a that's a huge, huge thing if if the appeals court just lets the ruling stand, right? Jackie? No, I mean, I think it is a huge thing. And so I think what, um, to your point about, you're exactly right about about the midterm elections and health care was, was a big part of that. And I think the Democrats did a very good job focusing their message pretty much nationwide on the federal elections, which um, is, is quite commendable. Um, so I do think if, if this does go forward, the Republicans, I, I would hope that they have a real strong replacement plan, right? We, we can't repeal and not replace or repeal and hope for the best or repeal and don't know what we're doing. But it does become more challenging because you do have, I mean, you do have the, the Senate, you know, you have that the, the Senate's controlled by Republicans and you've got Nancy Pelosi in the House. And, you know, of all things Nancy Pelosi is, she's a, she's very smart and a, yeah. and a very good operator. I, I think, Theron, this does seem to me to hand a gift to the Democrats uh, in Congress. Look, they were um, they're on the rope. They're trying to figure out after the Mueller report um, exonerated the president from 
from collusion. It's a little less clear what it did in terms of um, obstruction. Obstruction, but they're trying. They're sort of rudderless for for the time. How do we move forward now? Pelosi, as Jackie says, has always said, Mm -hmm. "No, no, we've got business. If we stick to our agenda, to Mm -hmm. the things we believe in, we'll be fine." But this gives them a gift. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the national conversation right now, all the presidential candidates have shifted from at first they were saying, hey, we want to make it public. You want to make this Mueller report public because I think they were kind of hedging. They didn't know what was going to be in it. But then you saw a shift bill to now talking about making sure that this tax cut plan, which we've seen is not really working for middle class Americans. But now, three days ago, we celebrated nine the ninth year, uh, nine year anniversary of Affordable Care Act. Not, three days ago, so on uh, March twenty third is when the Affordable Care Act was passed and became law. And so now, this gives an opportunity for Democrats to go back into their districts, to go all around the country, and say, "Hey, listen, here Republicans go again with this, you know, repeal option, but they don't have anything to replace it with." And so it was really a gift, but it's the one issue that I think that we've seen grow in popularity because we know that there's a huge amount of people out there right now who have pre-existing conditions that have benefited from the Affordable yeah, Care Act. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a gift in another way, too, Kevin. Um, I think everybody, Republican and Democrat, uh, does imagine there's going to be some uptick, but most people think small, in the president's approval ratings as a result of this. But the reason this seems to me to be a gift is that we know from polling, far fewer Americans care one way or the other about the Mueller investigation and Russian collusion than they do about um, their health care. Right. Well, and if you look at what the Democrats did today, they went right to the pre-existing condition benefit, which has been enormously popular. All Even when Obamacare had very low popularity, the pre-existing condition part of it had high popularity, and that's where they are. I mean, yeah, and, and that no, and you're right, and that's going to be interesting to see what, again what what happens. I mean, you never know what what's going to happen. Is that President Trump has been very clear that he wanted to make sure that there there was something for pre-existing conditions, and that that remained. So again, I think we have to wait and see what both sides do, and hopefully, it will be better than what we did for the midterms, which was, you know, the Democrats had a very solid message about health care, and quite frankly. Republicans and I, and we can discuss later about the the tax cut did have a great effect on the economy and so we can there and I can do this offline but uh, but but <laughs> I think what they would have no and then help middle class too but anyway I think the 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 problem was Republicans were consistent about what they'd already done where the Democrats were focusing on what they were going to do and I think that focus is a bit is a very different focus that people understand I have to ask though because I mean we have two. Right. Brilliant strategists. We have to get room. to a He's break. So ask us. it, and then we'll take a break and come back okay. and what answer I, it. When we get back, the answer I want is, why would the administration do this today? I want from each of you well, the best possible reason. I, I think that's a great one. And on the way into the break, I just want to reinforce something you said at the lunch. You know, we know that that the president was on the Hill today to have a, a celebratory mm-hmm. lunch with Republicans on the way in, he told reporters that this is the year of health care for Republicans. So we'll watch how that uh, comes together. So we'll get to uh, Kevin Riley's question, but first this break. Now is the perfect time to clean out the garage and get rid of that car you no longer need. You'll face the coming months with a fresh start. And by donating your used car to GPB, you'll even get a tax deduction. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. Since President Trump was elected, the city of Portland, Oregon has seen violent protests between the far left and far right. How am I supposed to explain this to my 12-year-old daughter? that we allow adults to fight on the streets of our city. I'm Audie Cornish. What happens when civil protest boils over into civil unrest? This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. It's 4 till 7 here on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. Jackie Cushman, before the break, Kevin Riley wanted to hear from you and Theron Johnson. Why would the administration decide to try 
to completely wipe out Obamacare at this moment in time. Well, Bill, I think you had it before we left, and I and I pulled it up, and sure enough, I'm, I'm behind because I haven't been following President Trump's tweets um, by the minute, which you have to do. <laughs> um, and, and sure enough, he tweeted an hour ago, the Republican Party will become the party of health care. So my, my guess, so... Obviously, he's noticed in the midterms the Democrats did a very good job running on that message that we needed a solution for health care. And I guess he's got from now until next election to to lay it out. And so so he's saying does, not the wall this election, re- only health care. Oh, he's going to have the wall by then. That's, okay. so, so that's where I'm, I was actually going to go there. I think that it was a sort of postponement of the conversation, not only about the wall, but this infrastructure um, plan and this infrastructure, you know, all this money is supposed to be going to these rural counties and to these rural areas of America. And so I think it was a punt. But I think to Jackie's point, I got to agree with her. Exit polling showed Kevin and Bill that healthcare was the way that even Lucy McBath, who talked about gun control and gun violence in this country, but she also had a message around healthcare, mm-hmm. picked up a lot of suburban women, not only in Georgia, but all across the country. And so what you're seeing now from the administration is a sort of pivot away from the wall, away from infrastructure. He sort of feels vindicated at a time where we still had 30 people, I think, that go to jail over this Russia Mueller investigation, right? So while he hasn't been necessarily implicated as far as collusion, the obstruction conversation is still ongoing. And so what he's trying to do now, Kevin, is take a issue that I think Democrats are going to continue to be strong on, but to try to move towards the middle and show the American people, hey, the Republicans have got a health care plan too. But it always comes down to one thing, how are you going to pay for it? And so I think that's where you're going to see the difference in the uh, philosophies and the proposals from Democrats and Republicans. All right. Well, it'll be interesting to watch how that unfolds in the months ahead. Uh, another piece of breaking news uh, that happened uh, shortly before we went on the air, and just to set it up hmm. briefly, both the Senate and the House have now passed their separate versions of the so-called fetal heartbeat bill. They've both approved the measure, which would all but outlaw abortion in Georgia, uh, demanding that after six weeks, after essentially what is supposed to be a heartbeat, but we've learned isn't really a heartbeat at all, but about six weeks in, after that, no abortion. But the Senate version was slightly different than the House version, and so right now the Senate bill is back in the House, and they now have to vote to approve or disapprove of the changes. Theron, we don't see any reason, we didn't see any reason why the House, although there are likely to be some suburban Republicans who find themselves mm-hmm. unavailable to cast a vote, take, take this, a thing, <laughs> this thing is headed toward um, uh, the governor's desk eventually, isn't it? And, and unfortunately, it is. Okay. Um, you know, I echo many of the men, but more importantly, women who are pro-choice, um, that came down to the Capitol by the hundreds, if not thousands, and by the way, peacefully protested this bill. I mean, you did have some little organized <laughs> chaos. And so, um, but one of the things that I'm learning is, Bill, as a person who uh, is not a parent yet, hoping to be a parent very soon, uh, I've opened my ears to hear both sides of the story. And even if you talk to someone who's really pro-life, they still do not necessarily want to take away the ability for a woman to decide what she should do with her body or not. And I think even if you talk to some of the dads and the men, this is a very Mm -hmm. emotional decision that some of them have had to make. And so I'm trying Mm -hmm. to take the partisanship out of this a little bit and really bring a level of humanization to it. And um, again, I'm pro-choice. I think that men especially um, should not tell women what they should or should not do with their bodies. But but I think that as we go on and look at this bill um, to manifest, you're going to see this be a big, big conversation in the upcoming primary elections yeah, on both I, sides. I think, uh, the breaking news, Jackie, which we got from uh, uh, Kevin's uh, Senate reporter, Maya Prabhu, is that Georgia right to life, one of the most important mm-hmm. pro-life, <laughs> anti-abortion groups in the state, is now urging members in the House who, to reject this bill because it doesn't go far enough. It has provisions that account for the life of the mother, those rape, rape, and, rape incest, and incest, right, that right. sort and, of And again, thing. it's also through <clears throat> six weeks, which does provide some time. So this is, I, I agree with Theron that this is a very, obviously a very emotionally charged issue. Um, I have two children. I've actually had two miscarriages before I had my children. So I've been through um, both the trauma of losing, I mean, of losing to me what was a child, um, even though it was very early, twice. And then I was lucky enough to be able to have two children. So it is a hard topic. I'd like to back up and say, I don't think, and of course I can't change what happened, but I don't think the bill would have come up like it did 
if he wouldn't have seen what happened in Virginia and New York, quite frankly, if he wouldn't have seen the, the, the extreme Democratic position of if in the third trimester, you know, something happens, then, then you can basically and I'm going to you correct me. I know you can basically kill kill the child. I mean, it's, I know it's more complicated than that, but it was a very extreme position from the left. And I think without that, you would have actually seen what Governor Kemp originally um, suggested, which was, I believe, we would just pass a law so that if Roe v. Wade was overturned, that it would actually become law in Georgia. The true rebel. Right, <laughs> right. So that would have been a different, I think that was the initial where we would have ended up if it wouldn't have been for kind of this craziness, the Democratic craziness in you know, in Virginia well, th- and in, in New York. Do you think then that all the Southern, these states, mostly in the South, that have passed similar bills, Kentucky, Mississippi, I think Ohio is still debating one, not in the South, and a few others, they're all passing fetal heartbeat bills. Absolutely. Because, that sounds because, less like a reaction to Virginia and New York I, I, and more like the conservative. I disagree with you. I disagree. Okay. That's, just my, that's my opinion. Again, okay. I could be wrong because I can't turn back time and right. I can't I can't say what, you know, would have happened. But that's, that's kind of my, my working theory. But okay. having said that, I do understand why right to life, if you really believe that life begins at conception, if that's, I'm not I'm not saying it's your belief, but if that's one's belief, then you can see why both it wouldn't be enough for right to life, um, but also where the, the, the six weeks really, it does make sense for most people because it still allows some leniency in terms of ability to make decisions. But, so it's a really, it's just a really hard, it's a really hard, it, hard topic. It's an incredibly hard topic, and you're so right about that. And Kevin, you know, one of the arguments we heard from opponents of this bill, 481, uh, in the, from the well of the Senate, too, as well as the House, is this, that if you really are on the side of supporting 481, you do that because you believe that you're taking a life when you mm-hmm. abort a child. The minute you make an exception for things like rape, incest, life of the mother, um, viability of the fetus, whatever, you're belying your belief that this is mur- essentially murder. So exceptions seem to be what Georgia Right to Life is saying. You can't kill a child uh, just because of the way in which it was conceived. Right. I I would say that I agree with Jackie. I mean, Georgia Right to Life's position is consistent, Mm -hmm. whether you agree with it or not. They are being consistent in, in what they have said and what I assume they will continue to say. You just have to question the you know the just the reality of politics and the legislative process. I mean, if this this issue is so important to you, it's hard to imagine you, that you would ever get further than this with a law mm-hmm. in in the United States. Sorry, it, oh, go ahead. The other thing, if it's still in there, and no, it's not, just correct me because it could have changed since I read it last week. Or, um, but I think it also doesn't it also. Um, say that once you hit six weeks, you're also counted as a citizen in Georgia. Yes, you're counted. You will be counted in the state Senate, which means Cens- that census, the state census. Senate, census. Cens- census. Census. <laughs> you can be elected to the Senate, too. No, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, uh, yes, it does say that. It has a lot of other per- personhood provisions. Theron, do you, is there any part of you that wonders if Georgia Right to Life's position on this could give some of those Republicans who really don't want to vote for this because they're worried about what it might mean for re-election an opportunity to bail? Or are those people going to bail anyway and not going to make a difference in the House's approve, disapprove? Well, one of the things, Bill, you guys have talked about on this show a long time is that I think it's this mad dash for Republicans in the House and the Senate to get as many conservative measures they can past this two-year session because— it is anticipated that Democrats are going to pick up uh, House seats and going to pick up Senate seats. And so, you know, for our listeners, let's just bring the, pol- the politics into this, is that you have some people at the Capitol that are struggling with this vote. I mean, you can literally see it on the faces. Mm-hmm. I mean, just look at the Senate committee that was made up of all men. I think it's uh, Renee Ehrman. Right, right, you know, right, I mean, you just look Ehrman. at their faces in that picture. I think that's kind of been going around. Yeah, and we it, tweeted that photograph it, it, it out yesterday. Them, right? And so, so I want our listeners to know that this is a political Maneuver, not questioning the intent and people in the people's heart. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying no, but they, they're trying to get it done during this session while they have the votes. But the second thing is, this is also a creating a legal pathway. Let's not forget that our president campaigned on basically overturning Roe v. Wade. And so they know that if Georgia is able to pass mm-hmm. a conservative abortion, uh, you know, and, I'm sorry, anti-abortion bill like this with the heartbeat, it strengthens the legal case that you have a state like Georgia to the appellate court to, to continue the efforts to try to overturn Roe v. Wade. So there's a political avenue here, Kevin and guys, but there's also a legal pathway that I think Republicans need to be exposed on because it's trying to strengthen the legal argument when this reaches the federal um, debate. 
And, and again, I, um, I think this would not have happened again. You can't go back and look. And if it wasn't for the extreme positions in Virginia and in New York, I think it, quite frankly, it scared a lot of people thinking, oh, my gosh, mm. third third trimester. That's outrageous. You can't even imagine it. And I think, quite frankly, it made him very concerned. Yeah. And for and for people that really I mean, this is such a hard thing because and the Democrats have been have been very smart and frame this about trusting women. It's not about trusting women. It's about if you believe that that when that heartbeat starts, that that is a child. It just makes everything it, it makes the conversation very different. But Jackie, I think you will agree that some women, not all, some and in six weeks, they don't even know if they're pregnant or not. I mean, not not all women, but some of the women I've talked to and some of pe- women in my family uh, who had to make a choice, many of them decided to have their children. They didn't even know they were pregnant in six weeks. So I think I am standing with Democrats where I want to trust that woman and their spouse when they have to make that decision. And it, it is a hard decision. I'll yeah. give you one more. I know we've got to move on. But I'll give you I'll give you one random, I think, well, uh, known but not well published. So my my grandfather, my father's father, when he went to enlist in the um Navy, when he was 18, found out that the woman that he thought was his sister was his mother. So, mm. say, you know, wow. the, the decisions like this have been around for a long time. They're, they're very hard decisions. Yeah. Um, we're going to watch how this unfolds. I have said, Kevin, ever since this first pa- uh, first passed out of committee uh, that on, uh, that on the House, that this is one of those bills that you would think leaders would want to get out of there as fast as possible. <laughs> Why do you let it linger? Why? I'd love to know, and maybe Theron or Jackie are more in touch with what's happening down there. Why is the House delaying on this agree-disagree? The, the faster you get this out of the way, the, the fewer people are going to be down there lobbying one way or the other like crazy. I just, I don't understand. Do you have any sense of why they yeah, haven't already you. acted? Well, I think that, and again, I don't want to get into uh, predicting what the speaker and the lieutenant governor and the governor and the governor's floor leaders are attempting to do before Sunny die. I will tell you that just from being down there uh, a lot, Bill, is that they're trying to sort of uh, get as many bills as they can pass and they saw the amount of emotion the amount of controversy that this ah, caused and so okay. you know at a time where the, we just talked about the governor passing his medicaid waivers bill it's all about sort of strategically pushing them through mm-hmm. to basically get okay, that makes sense yeah. that does that, yeah. there is a certain amount of sense in that thank you for uh, helping us understand that why don't we do this we got so much more to talk about why don't we get though our second break of the show out of the way so we can come back and move on, march through this agenda that we have to take up today. You're listening to Political Rewind. On the next Fresh Air, comic, writer, and actor John Mulaney. He used to write for Saturday Night Live and returned twice in the past year to host the show. He also does the voice of Andrew in the animated series Big Mouth about adolescence and puberty. His comedy special Kid Gorgeous at Radio City is streaming on Netflix. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. My name is Chuck Reese. I'm the editor of an online magazine called The Bitter Southerner. And I've seen decades of misconceptions about the South from the Beverly Hillbillies on down. In our podcast with GPB, we challenge those stereotypes and paint a very different picture of the American South. You can subscribe to the Bitter Southerner podcast for free at gpb.org slash podcasts. We're back on Political Rewind. Uh, Kevin Riley, editor of the AJC, Jackie Cushman, Theron Johnson in the studio uh, for today's broadcast. Before we move on, I want to remind everybody, uh, Monday night, April 8th, we'll be out in Athens at Instructional Plaza. Jackie, before the show, said that sounds very serious. It sounds sounds it had a sort of a Soviet-era <laughs> ring to it, you know. Anyhow, uh, we're going to be there at 7 o'clock that night uh, recording Political Rewind in front of a live audience. It'll air the next day at 2 o'clock, as our show usually does. We're going to have a couple of uh, UGA alums, Greg Bluestein, uh, mm-hmm. will be on the show. So will Jim Galloway, uh, Charles Bullock who is kind of one of the legendary professors of political science out there. They'll all be joining us. So if you want to be part of our show that night, uh, just go to politicalrewind.org, and uh, you'll find a link where you can sign up. It's free 
But we we need, in fact, now we're uh, we're starting to get really crowded. So I would suggest if you really want to come see us, and we hope you do. It's a lot of fun when we do the show in front of a live audience. Just go to that link and sign up as quickly as you can. All right, enough of that. Um, on Sunday, Theron, you and I both were, in, uh, we both saw uh, Kamala Harris in different settings on Sunday. I Sunday is the first, you know, after spending 20 years covering presidential candidates all over the country, uh, I finally have sort of stopped doing, I haven't been out on the, in the, in, on the road, certainly, and I haven't even been going to see the couple who have already come in here. And I decided on Sunday it was a good day to finally get a chance to see some of these folks in person. So I went to Ebenezer Baptist Church, where uh, she had been welcomed by uh, Raphael Warnock. And uh, uh, it was the 11 o'clock service. It was packed Mm -hmm. for her. And then you saw her in a different setting. You were at a fundraiser Mm -hmm. for her. Good crowd at the fundraiser? Yeah, no recordings. So they made that very, very clear. I'm not asking you to reveal (laughs) anything. But no, I think, um, Bill, to your point, um, what I saw in Senator Kamala Harris is what I saw in President Barack Obama back in 2007 when he first came to Atlanta. You may remember it was um, this sort of just uh, aura. It was just this momentum. And one of the things that she talked about at Ebenezer and she also talked about at the private fundraiser is don't miss this moment. And I was telling Jackie before we started uh, taping, I mean, I'm sorry, before we went live, is that I saw certain spurts of Obama in her. I mean, this affectious smile that she has. But more importantly, she's able to really drill down uh, about certain things like the economy and healthcare and education. And more importantly, she talked about the things that unite us as Americans more so than divide us. And the other thing that was very interesting, Bill, is when she was talking to us both on Sunday, that's when the Mueller report was basically yeah. about to come out. So yeah. I'm assuming that she was sort of not maybe not knowing what was going to come out. But let me tell you this. I think that she had five events. And so every spectrum of the city, whether it was low dollar fundraisers, uh, people who didn't get a chance to do the fundraisers, everyone got a chance to actually hear from her. Uh, and I think that she's going to run a good campaign. So Robert Jimison, our producer, was also at Ebenezer Baptist on Sunday. And uh, he realized uh, what a lot of us who've been there over the years do. That's a remarkable place <laughs> if you're a candidate for anything. Well, you don't have to be a candidate to love going to Ebenezer on a Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Robert uh, was really intrigued by the candidate visit and filed this report. Colorful hats, welcoming ushers, traditional spirituals, and even a politician or two. These are regular rituals for churchgoers who attend historic Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta's Sweet Auburn neighborhood. The church home of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. made its mark during the Civil Rights Movement as a place where leaders were born, the epicenter for the black community to worship, gather, and work together to promote social justice. Today, Ebenezer maintains that legacy as a congregation actively engaged in its community by continuing its mission to promote social justice. That often means serving as the bridge between political leaders and the community. To some, featuring a political candidate in the pulpit on a Sunday morning might seem unusual. But as Emory political science professor Dr. Andrew Gillespie explains it, churches in the black community encompass more than religious teachings. The African-American church has long been an important um, place for social organizing. So it's not just a place for spiritual development, but it's also been a community center. It's a place where people socialize. It's a place where people organized for political activity. And Ebenezer and other churches played a really central role in the civil rights movement as we understand it in the mid-20th century. Ebenezer has continued that tradition. For Ebenezer, the tradition did not end during the 1950s and 1960s. The effort to promote civil rights continues in their mission today. And that ethos is what has allowed the space to be used by Jesse Jackson, who preached ahead of his 1988 run for president. And in 2014, when former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder spoke to the congregation about policing after a black man was shot by a white officer in Ferguson, Missouri. The issues raised in Missouri are not unique to that state or to that small city. Earlier this month, former Vice President Al Gore held a forum on climate change. And during campaign season, the church welcomes the likes of Senator David Perdue, Cory Booker, and most recently Kamala Harris. 
Church leaders like senior pastor Ralph Warnock are clear. The church and the congregation does not officially endorse any candidate. They have stated in the past that they abide by federal regulations banning churches and other charitable organizations from endorsing candidates. And candidates, too, must be careful with their word choice when standing in front of the historic congregation. I told pastor, I said, I learned a long time ago, I let preachers preach and I just come up to share a few words. (laughs) As the 2020 campaign season ramps up, Ebenezer Baptist Church is sure to play host to many more local and national political candidates. That's Robert uh, Jimison reporting. Um, Jackie, did your dad campaign? Or you can't really camp. You've got to be careful. Yeah, no, he hasn't. As, I mean, you, you don't campaign there, obviously, right? You don't. You just go speak but, there. He actually has but spoken. But did you do he, a lot he of has, churches? He did, oh my gosh, he did a lot of churches. <laughs> um, when I was growing up, usually churches with four people in the right and in the, in the, in the yeah, they were listening to him. But he's actually he's actually been at, at, at Ebenezer. He went there years ago when um, what's now our house, which used to be Genesis Shelter had their anniversary, and he helped us kick that off and raise some money for the the nonprofit that works on homeless children and their families. But I've got to say, um, you know, Reverend Warnock, he and I served together on the Gears Board. I think a lot of them, that church obviously has a lot of historic significance as well as current day influence, um, and she's smart to go there. Yeah. Um, it, well, look, to hear Raphael Warnock preach is just a <laughs> great uh, thing. I've got to say, Theron, one of my greatest experiences in covering presidential was getting was I used to travel with Jesse quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Seeing Jesse Jackson, I remember a night when he was at a church, an African American church in Cleveland, Ohio, and he was particularly on that night. We'd all sat in his hotel suite earlier that evening. The reporters who were with him, and he said, "Watch, I'm going to do it tonight." He blew the roof off off the place. Watching an African American candidate in an African American yeah. shirt is really can be really explosive. <laughs> Listen, and I, and I agree totally with Dr. Gillespie. I mean, Ebenezer in particular mm-hmm. has been a place where yes, you go there to worship, but you also go there for social um, um, socializing and, and, and different things. But one of the things that Jackie just pointed out is, listen, Ebenezer for a long time has been one of the safest places a Republican elected official can go. Explain that because. You know, you look at Senator Perdue is there. Um, You know, you look at Attorney General uh, Chris Carr, who started Mm -hmm. talking about how we need to expand our scope on Stone Mountain. And we need to he basically came out and did the bell tower. And so, well, yes, it's a very um, necessary place that Democrats go. But it's been Mm -hmm. the place that Republicans probably feel the most at home. Johnny Isaacson always Always attends the MLK service and sits through the entire thing. And the thing about the African-American community, we are probably some of the most... um, forgiving um, people when, you know, people do things. I mean, there are some folks that have stood in the pulpit of Ebenezer that clearly has done things that directly affects us in a negative way, but we allow them to speak and it's not some of the um, things that you would see in sort of a public rally. And so I think that Raphael Warnock, Reverend Warnock, has injected politics in a very safe way that doesn't um, violate his 501c3 status, <laughs> but he's opening it up to a younger more vibrant congregation. And then you still have some of the people like Congressman John Lewis, my godmother, Vicki Johnson is still a member there. She's been there uh, for decades. And so I think that you're going to see more Democrats start to come to that church, but I guarantee you, you're going to see a few more Republicans go there as well. Kevin? You know, uh, the Reverend Warnock's a regular contributor to our opinion pages and a very reliable one, although we usually have to ask him to Cut it back a little bit. He's, <laughs> he, he's, His he's, congregants every now and then say that too. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he usually gives us something that's a little too long, but, but um, we depend on him for a perspective. You know, I, I do think uh, while there's always a temptation to put people in boxes in terms of the point of views they'll represent and what they want to comment on, I think he's a reliable, thoughtful person, not just in this community, but really uh, for the country. All right. Well, I really appreciate Robert filing that. You know, as the presidential campaign picks up and, and as Georgia, you, do you agree that Georgia is going to really be in play in 2020 in presidential politics? Well, one of the other reasons I went to D.C. is that I met with uh, about five of my former Obama alumni colleagues. And it's very interesting that out of the five of them, three of them are currently strongly considering getting back into the presidential politics game. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they all remember me doing, Bill, is begging Jim Messina, who was the president's uh, uh, campaign manager, President Obama's campaign manager at the time, to say, hey, Georgia's in play, Georgia's in play, but we made a financial decision to protect 
Florida and Virginia, yeah. and we made a play. So I guarantee you this. I'll make this. Georgia is going to see not only a lot of visits, but we're going to see a lot of money. We are a battleground state. We are truly a purple state, and, and presidential candidates are going to play heavy here. Jackie? And I think it's actually good for Georgia because, um, I mean, I think both of us have felt the in years past where money was sucked out and uh, spent other places. And so I think it's actually good for both parties that we're, I mean, I think they're both going to campaign very heavily in Georgia and uh, Georgians should take it seriously. Goodness knows it's good for the TV stations. Absolutely. <laughs> campaign <laughs> well, reven- advertising don't, revenue. Don't forget, <laughs> don't, don't forget, I moved here from Ohio. So to me, it was sort of odd at first that campaign season would come and be the way it was. And there were anything there were non-political camp, uh, uh, commercials on television, right? But I, I do agree with Jackie. I think that Georgia needs to recognize how mm-hmm. important it will become. And it won't just be, you know, the campaigns and the campaign spending, all of which is nice, especially for us who work in the media. But more mm-hmm. important, there are things that will come to the state and things that the state and its leaders can demand because it's so important mm-hmm. and because people who want to win the White House have got to be successful in Georgia. All right, we're running a little bit short on time, but uh, Theron, one of the questions I asked uh, in church on Sunday, getting there early, uh, asked a number of members of the church was, uh, what do you all think about this proposal that Stacey Abrams should run on a ticket with Joe Biden? Is this is this really uh, a thing out there, Theron? Well, what was the response you got? Uh, some people th- thought that she should have her own, be independent and run her own campaign right. at whatever level she chooses to do it. But you know, Biden's pretty popular in that crowd. I mean, people like Joe Biden. African American community is high on him. So it was mixed. But is she, where is she at? I mean, have you talked to her? Uh, I have not talked to her directly, but I have talked to some folks that are in still helping her. And, you know, she's got this fair fight still going on. I've also talked to some people in the Biden campaign. The reoccurring theme I've heard from both of them is they're weighing all the options. And so I think this sort of VP. Um, sort of um, thing with her and Joe Biden was sort of constructed, I think, a lot by the media. You hadn't really heard Biden's people come out and say, hey, this is something we're doing. I think, as we call him Uncle Joe, he's really looking at this <laughs> as going on. But look, but I got to commend Stacey Abrams. I mean, she has stayed popular. Yeah. She stayed in the media uh, since her unfortunate defeat in November. And so I think that she is hearing a lot from what I've been hearing from African-American women, especially don't don't settle for VP if you're going to run for um, in the yeah, national ticket. And that's what a number of the people yeah. at Ebenezer. Yeah. You know, what's, I, I said this yesterday. Stacey Abrams now, she recognizes she has become a national figure. She was very quick to put out a statement about the Mueller report. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a funny statement. Well, she didn't put out a statement. I'm sorry. She told, she said this to a group that had come to see her when she was on her book tour. She said, uh, having uh, William Barr uh, uh, come out with a report on the Mueller report mm-hmm. was like your brother interpreting your report card. <laughs> but the point is, that's where she sees herself now as a figure whose comments and thoughts are deserving of national attention. That's fascinating. Well, no, and and they are. I mean, she she's very smart. I've always said, I mean, Stacey Abrams is very smart. She's a very hard worker. I think it's up to her to decide what she wants to do next. All right. Thank that was you realize that we were just about out of time. Thank you, Jackie. So true professor. Sarah Johnson, Jackie Cushman, Kevin Riley. Uh, we're back again tomorrow at two. We're gonna talk legislature, of course, because Greg Bluestein will be here. But there's a very important case being argued in the Supreme Court today about gerrymandering. We'll talk about what its implications could be for the state of Georgia. So come on back tomorrow at two. We'll be here. Hope you will too. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.